I'd like to give credit to Pastor John Piper for a sermon he delivered on this topic. His explanation of the passages we're about to read was uh, moving and gripping, and I'd like to share it with you. We're going to look at John chapter 3 to begin. And everybody is familiar, it seems, with John 3.16. Today we're going to look at the larger context and the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus quotes in John chapter 3 to, um, to bring a blind man into spiritual sight. Let's read that conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, a Jewish official with some authority and status who kind of sneaks in to meet with Jesus at night under cover of darkness. He's obviously afraid of his reputation being damaged, but he still wants to see Jesus, and he's having such a hard time seeing him. If you sometimes feel like that, put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes this morning. John chapter 3, verses beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? (laughs) Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We've probably all read that passage before, probably many times. Did you ever read that passage and have a hard time following the conversation? Does it seem to you like Nicodemus comes in with a question or, a, or maybe a, a compliment of Jesus, and then, and then Jesus like throws him a curveball or you know, hits him with a, a response from the other direction? And, and it seems like Jesus is talking about things that Nicodemus isn't talking about. Well, Nicodemus felt like that too. He was kind of lost in this conversation. You can see him sputtering, saying, so born again, I need to, what, like become very small and somehow go back into my mom's womb and then be born again? What? You know, I mean, he's, he's totally lost here. And Jesus is pointing something out to him again and again, saying, truly, 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 this is a spiritual reality, and, and you're trying to wrap your mind around physical things that happen when a baby is born from his mom. Nicodemus is lost. He doesn't get it. Jesus is like a witness in a courtroom to him, talking him through the process of becoming a Christian explaining that it's a spiritual process and it's something God does inside you invisibly, like a spiritual rebirth. 
And Nicodemus gets hung up on the details and makes that comment, can a man go back into his mom and be born when he's old? What, what would you have said to Nicodemus, right? Like, Nicodemus comes, he says, essentially, I want to believe, like I know you're doing God things. I can see God at work here. Like I, I, can, I can tell, but I just can't quite get there. And so Jesus says to him, you can't be born, unless you're born again, you can't get it. You can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is saying, I think I see it. Can you help me see more? And so Jesus points out to him that there's something needed. It's a spiritual rebirth, and he hasn't been born of this process by the Holy Spirit. And so he complains and, and says, I don't get it. Then Jesus says, breaks it down real clearly. Unless you're born of water, a baby forms in a, his, mother's, his or her mother's womb, and, and is floating in this, this water, this amniotic water, and is born out of this water. After the water breaks, the baby comes forth and is delivered. And he's like, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Like, you've already done that. You don't need to do that again. What you need is to be born of spirit. He's saying, your spirit isn't alive. You, you were born good, you have a body, you have eyeballs and ears, and you have a brain, you can think, but, but you're thinking hard about this thing, and thinking isn't quite going to get you there. You need to be born spiritually, and he just can't, he just can't go there with Jesus. He's, he's marveling at what Jesus is saying. Then Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus isn't changing the subject here like we might have thought our first time reading through this. Jesus is saying that something invisible needs to take place that you can't bring about by doing something or by doing the right things. And you can't look at somebody and say, yeah, They're born again. They're born spiritually. They've been born of heaven from the Holy Spirit. This is an unseen thing, and you're going to not be able to see it with your natural eyes. And then Jesus really hits home. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. He's talking about himself the Holy Spirit who's witnessing from heaven, the Father who's given the eternal word that was written down and he's read it and studied it. He's a Pharisee, right? He's a Bible teacher. This is his job. He knows this stuff. He has all this stuff. And now Jesus puts the nail in the coffin. He says, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. He's just pointed out to Nicodemus that there's something where he's, he's probably unwilling to receive what Jesus and the disciples have been teaching. But he wants it. Have you ever had a hard time taking in a teaching of the scripture? Have you ever had a hard time having faith that, that this is so, and you've struggled and you've wanted it, but you just couldn't quite bring yourself to believe. The problem might be that you're not receiving what you've read. You might not be willing to take it in. But Jesus doesn't leave him there. What would you have done? This guy's kind of arguing with you. You've walked him through the process of how to become a Christian, how it happens. It's a spiritual thing, right? It's from heaven. And then Nicodemus is just putting up objection after objection. And you, and you really drive it home and you say, look, you're, you're not receiving it. The problem is in the reception. The problem is in your set, like Greg Weiss used to say. That's why you're, the signal's not coming in. It's not a problem with the signal. 
It's not a problem with the message or the word that you yourself are a professional teacher of. There's no problem with these scriptures. Would you have said to Nicodemus, all right, that's it. You just don't get it. Come back when you're born again. Probably tempting, right? But Jesus now shifts from being a a teacher, a, a witness, explaining the way of salvation, the way to enter the kingdom of God. And he switches from saying, this is how it's done, to this is what I came down from heaven to do for you. He says, I've taken you as far as I can by way of explanation. You can't go any higher. If I've told you earthly things, like explain the process of conversion, and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In effect, he's saying, you keep missing the point. You keep pressing me for deeper and higher explanations of the new birth. But a heart of unbelief, an unregenerate heart, can't ascend to the kinds of truth that I have to give you about the new birth. Jesus and others have been telling Nicodemus about how to become a Christian, but Nicodemus isn't ready. He wants it, but can't get it. Now, in the next verse, Jesus switches from talking like a teacher explaining spiritual things to talking like the Son of Man who came down from heaven to bring us what we couldn't go up and get. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now Jesus is going to show Nicodemus that to enter the kingdom of God, he needs more than just to be born again. Something has to happen to remove the wrath of God and unleash the power of the Holy Spirit to breathe into his spirit this spiritual breath of life so that he becomes a living, spiritual person alive to God and dead to his sin. Jesus chooses a story to explain this. And he chooses a story from the scripture that Nicodemus knows well. I mean, he probably had this stuff memorized or very close to it. You could probably have called on Nicodemus from the back row and said, you're preaching today. And he would have said, okay, just give me a passage. And he would have walked on up and he could have explained this very passage without having to open it up and look it up. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, John 3, 14, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's saying, this is how you get into the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, this Bible teacher, his mind immediately went back to this story. And it's kind of shocking that Jesus picked this story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness because he could have picked a different one. He could, have, he could have picked a story where Jesus was saying, I'm like a lamb. Jesus is about to compare himself to a snake. That's dangerous. Anybody in Israel would have thought immediately, snake, uh, step on its head, right? Right? You know, their snakes are unclean. They're disgusting. They're, they, they embody evil. When, the, when Satan came to Adam and Eve as a serpent in the garden, he brought with him a curse. And he brought a curse on mankind through their rebellion. This is, we might think, the worst story Jesus could have picked. But we're going to see how wonderful and glorious he is in picking this passage. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they, sent out, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. This is the people of Israel. God has just delivered them from 400 years of being slaves, whipped and beaten, 
having their things stolen, their children mistreated, their wives mistreated. God has brought them out with a mighty hand from centuries of slavery. This is worse than what our own country experienced. They set out by the way, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What are they talking about? I thought they had manna from heaven. You guys remember manna? The people come out of Egypt, and they're, they're like, uh-oh, we didn't bring food. God's got them covered. He's not going to bring them out and leave them alone. God's not going to bring you out of a life of sin and then leave you to fend for yourself. He's going to provide for you physical food, spiritual food, and water to drink in the wilderness of your life. It's what he's always done, and it's just what he did with the people of Israel. As soon as they get out into this place of emptiness and lack, God explains to them, here's what you're going to do. You're going to wake up in the morning. You're going to open the flap of your tent. You're going to grab your basket. You're going to take about three steps, and then you're just going to start scooping. And you're going to scoop up all the bread you need. Just put it in your basket, take it back to your tent, and it'll last you all day. Trust me, there'll be enough. They went out in the morning, and they found this stuff like white flakes. I don't know if it looked like frost or something like that on the ground. If you've ever seen those really beautiful frost crystals, I, I wonder what this was like, but we can only wonder. But what we can know is, that, is what it tasted like. There's a description in the Pentateuch of what it tasted like, and it said it was like coriander seed and, and honey, like these spices and sweetness of this bread. This was delicious. And it was magical in that it just appeared. This is, this is supernatural stuff, right? So they're hungry. God meets their need just by making it come down from heaven. He just puts bread on the ground. This is the undoing of the curse. In the garden, man was to work and keep the garden, and he could pick fruit off the trees, and, and the ground produced food for them. Adam probably planted trees or shifted around a little patch of wheat or barley or whatever, right? Cultivated a little bit, but it was pretty easy. But then in the curse, he was told, by the sweat of your brow, you'll work the ground and it'll produce thorns. This is the undoing of the curse. He's not going to go out and plow. The Israelites didn't have to, have to make plows and yoke them up to oxen and carve these yokes and put them around the shoulders of their oxen and then, and then stand behind their plow until their hands were blistered and maybe bleeding and plow all day in the desert heat and then plant the seeds and water them and tend them and pick out the weeds. This is the undoing of the curse. They're in a wilderness and these undeserving, needy people just come out of hundreds of years, generations of slavery. They've got it made. This is one of the best things God ever did for anybody. And all they have to do is flip open the flap of their tent, take their basket, and just scoop up manna from heaven, bread from heaven, free. They didn't have to work for it. There was no toil involved. This is like walking to the kitchen and your wife already made you this delicious sandwich and there's a soda and she already popped the top off it just knowing you were about to walk to the kitchen and, and you just got to eat it. And, <laughs> what, do they, what do they say? They say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. This is arch blasphemy. One of the kindest, easiest, most generous things God ever did for anybody. And they're like, 
spit it out and spit these bitter words of complaint, ingratitude, and rebellion. They're saying, we don't want Moses. We don't want God. We don't need him. We need, we need what we had when we were slaves. Can you see Lot's wife turning around and looking back at Sodom? That's what's happening here. These guys deserve snakes. They deserve to be bitten by poisonous snakes and die. That's exactly what they deserve. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I think Moses was tempted to not pray for them, probably. And the Lord said to Moses, Oh, oh, and the Lord listened. The Lord listened to their prayer. These guys are like the, the, the serial sinner who's just done it again. Do you know how many times have you ever gone through the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and counted the number of times that the people like just openly and wildly rebelled against God and like stuck up their middle finger at Moses and cursed him and cursed God with what they said, how they complained, their ingratitude. Ah, but we do the same thing sometimes. See yourselves in this people and just like God. Every time they say, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against this leader of the people of God. <laughs> Pray for us. Every time God comes through for them, he's got a way for his anger, his right anger, to be turned away, for their sin to be covered, for them to have their shameful nakedness clothed, for their sin to be washed away. How's he going to do it? This is the great, one of the great mysteries of the Old Testament, Nicodemus probably thought, until this day in John chapter 3 when Jesus explained it to him and he began to get it for the first time. Look at what God does. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. Isn't that weird? So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What a wonderful and strange act of mercy. What does that mean? That's very weird. Let's make some observations. Number one, the serpent on the pole didn't keep people from being bitten, did it? It's not a vaccine that prevents them from getting the disease, from, that prevents them from getting poisoned. It's an anti-venom. It's not for people who are well. It's for bitten people. It's for people who have been bitten by a poisonous snake and are dying. Number two, the snakes are from God. God's anger is unleashed on this people for their sin of unbelief. They're not believing that God is going to take care of them. Unbelief, ingratitude, grumbling, and rebellion. Number three, the sign God used to save the people from the curse of the snakes is an image of the curse itself. 
They got bitten by snakes. They're dying from the snakes. God's anger is upon them. And God says, take a snake. No, he didn't say take a snake. He said, make a snake. Don't take one of these snakes, but make a snake that's like that. Lift it up for everybody to see. And in this image, this embodiment, this picture of evil and curse and death, just look at it. Look at it, and if you've been bitten, you'll be healed. It's an image of the curse itself. And Jesus is taking Nicodemus there, and he's saying, I'm going to become a snake for you. It's shocking that Jesus would choose this story. He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Why didn't Jesus pick something easier? Why didn't he say, you know, as the Passover lamb was slaughtered, so I, this lamb, you know, like, like, you know, I'm the, I'm the lamb, you know, so you have to partake of me. Why didn't he say, as the, as the animal in the garden was, was killed, probably a lamb, and its skin or hide or pelt was, was taken off, this dead animal, and it died so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. And so, so I'm the lamb, I'm the lamb that was killed, and you got my righteous clothing on you, and now you're no longer publicly nude, shamefully exposed in your sin. Now you're clothed. I, I was that lamb in the garden. He didn't take Nicodemus there. He said, I'm, I'm going to become a snake. This is shocking. This is hard to swallow. Last observation. All they had to do to be saved from God's anger was to look at what God made to hang on a pole. They just had to look at it. Can you imagine Moses receiving this command from God after hearing the people's uh, petition and praying for them? Can you imagine him like running to get some running to get some bronze, get a couple of bronze rods and scoop them up and run over to the blacksmith's tent and and pound this stuff and ha- fire it and hammer it till it's glowing red and real quick bend it into a snake. He, I don't think he did a very good job making it real artistic. I think as fast as he could, he just made this metal thing and before it was cold, he put it on a pole and, and the pole was probably cinched and he, and he stuck it up there as fast as he could and to save as many as possible. That's Moses' heart. But it's not the Pharisee's heart. Do you remember that, um, that Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who lifted up the Son of Man? It was Nicodemus' own company, his co-workers, his professional compatriots, Pharisees, sought an opportunity to betray him, and they got him, they got him, lifted up on a Roman cross. They got him crucified. So, in the wilderness, Moses lifted up this bronze serpent and anybody who looked at this symbol of curse and evil lived and, and now these Pharisees are lifting up, are going to lift up Jesus not to save people, or so they think, they're trying to murder him. They're trying to, trying to hang him. Trying to publicly humiliate him, get him stripped naked, beaten, exposed. They were trying to get rid of him in the worst possible way. Jesus said, yeah, that's the death I go to die. This is why I came down from heaven. I've taken my time to explain the spiritual birth. You've got to be born of the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual thing. It's like wind. You can't see it. You don't have to, 
you know, this isn't, this isn't going to a hospital or a midwife or whatever and getting born and having the water break. You're not born out, talk, not talking about being born out of water, Nicodemus. I'm talking about being born spiritually, but enough of that. Jesus goes to explaining what he came down from heaven to do for them. We can't miss the fullness of the imagery in the account. John Weiss said in a recent uh, Men's Advanced Breakfast that the fiery serpents in the wilderness were the result of sin and the judgment of death against that sin. The bronze serpent was God's answer along with his instruction to look at that serpent. The Israelites who were spared believed God's promise and therefore looked to the bronze serpent. Just as Abraham believed the promises of God and obeyed, so with those Israelites, so it is today. We look at Jesus lifted up and we behold Christ crucified. Paul describes the cross of Christ as a double exchange. He took our sin and we received his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christian, are you aware that you have become the righteousness of God? A couple of verses earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is the ultimate undoing of the curse, not the completion of it when we're glorified in heaven and our bodies are somehow raised and reunited with our spirits and we're where we appear with him and like him. It's not the, the, the finality of it, but it is the ultimate undoing of the curse. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, look at it. The new has come. This is the reality for you. This is the word of the Lord. It is required of us that we have faith and believe daily on this gospel that though we might feel very tainted, stained, and even covered in filth of our sin or exposed in our shameful nakedness of rebellion, it is required of us that as we daily remember this gospel and go through this gospel in our daily prayer life, that we remember and trust and believe and see Jesus as the one who did this double exchange. He didn't just become sin for us, he who knew no sin. We became the righteousness of God. In this passage, we see that Jesus has a solution He's no longer going to keep explaining how to be saved. He's going he's to do what we couldn't do, what we can't do on any day. Come to God on our own merits. Come to God by wrapping our minds around the truths of the Christian faith. Those who trust in Christ look away from their sin and toward his forgiveness which he accomplished. This faith goes with this new birth. Jesus is the Son of Man who has lifted up on the cross the way the snake was lifted up. How do we know Jesus is the Son of Man? Same book, book of John, chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus is talking to a man and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy he's talking to, the man that he had just healed, answers, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. So when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up, 
He's clearly talking about himself and his own crucifixion. There's no room for doubt here about who he's talking about. Jesus is the source of rescue. He's in the place of the snake. He is the source of healing, the source of rescue from the poison of sin and the wrath of God. Jesus is the source of eternal life. Moses lifted up the snake, but Moses is not the rescuer in the way Jesus sets up the comparison. Who lifts up the Son of Man on the cross? The Son of Man must be lifted up by whom, we said, the Pharisees, but they lifted him up to condemn. However, God lifted Jesus, the Heavenly Father lifted Jesus up to save. The Pharisees' attempt to foil the plan of God was itself foiled. Jesus, in the place of the snake, is portrayed as evil and a curse. The snakes were killing people. The pole is a picture, the snake on the pole is a picture of God's curse on the people. So it was with Jesus. In Galatians 3.13 it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In becoming like the snake, he was the embodiment of our sin and the embodiment of our curse. And in becoming sin and curse for us, he took ours away. I love this. I think about this kind of stuff pretty much every day. This is my, the bread and butter of my prayer life. This is what I eat for breakfast. When I get up and I have a quiet time, I usually one of the first things I'm aware of is, hmm, I'm a total sinner. And as I keep walking around the path in front of my house or on my treadmill or wherever I'm having a quiet time that day, I, uh, I quickly remember this gospel and I think, ah, yes, yes, he came to save me, yes. And I say with the scuzzy tax collector, the dishonest master thief of a tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And I mean it every time. And every time I'm renewed in knowledge after the image of my creator, and I am reminded that I am a new creation. And that's how I like to start my day. That's it. Go through this gospel every day. <clears throat> what Jesus gives us from the cross is eternal life. Let's continue verses 14 and 15. The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When our sin and God's wrath are taken away, God is for us totally. He's, he's totally on our side. And if God is for us, we will never die, but live forever with him in joy. There's now no condemnation. Nobody can be against you. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. It matters only what God has said from you. Hear his words. Like he said of Jesus, his son, so he says of you every day. Start your day by hearing this promise. This is my beloved son. This is my daughter whom I love. With her I am well pleased. Let those words, that gospel, echo in your ears every morning. So all of this Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, who was very confused about the new birth and how it happens, this is what you say to a person who is not born again, who you're witnessing to, and they're having a hard time wrapping their mind around when you're telling them, this is how you become a Christian. And they, they, won't, they won't get that. Why? Because they are dead and blind. Because God ordains to open the eyes of the blind when they have something to see, namely a compelling picture of Jesus crucified for sinners. Then their eyes are opened. Jesus is saying to 
Nicodemus, what should you do then? He said, look at me lifted up. Look at me in this way. And what should you do today? He said, look at Jesus lifted up. Look at him lifted up, become a curse for you. That you might become the righteousness of God. And that you are if you're in him. He continues, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Is there something you need to bring to the light? But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Ah, that is so comforting. That God has prepared good works in advance for us to do. And all we have to do is lift up the door of our tent and go out and do them. He's already got it all laid out for us. That's the Christian life. It's a life of faith. We walk it out by faith. By faith in the Son of God who was crucified for me. And now I no longer live, but he lives in me. This is very good news. There's this old-fashioned word in German called Somebody who speaks German is going to correct me. Good spiel. If you've ever heard somebody say, of course you have, uh, give me the spiel. What's the spiel? That means what's the news? Spiel means news. Good, God, however you say it, means good. It comes into modern English uh, like it used to sound. It means good news. It's such good news that today around the world, we've kept this word that's been brought out in, from old German into new English, good spiel, gospel, good news. We have this special name for this news Jesus is telling Nicodemus, this news he's telling you today, this news he's telling you every morning when you wake up. He's waiting to tell you again that you're, you're in me if you will look at me in faith and let me take away your sins make you clothed in robes of glorious righteousness, my robes of light. Look to Jesus and live. And then look to him again and again, day by day, and continue to drink of this water of life. It'll never leave you thirsty. You'll wake up thirsty every morning, and, and you'll have it right there, a big bucket that's being poured into with the faucet of God, this river of the water of life welling up in you. Read and memorize these scriptures. Drink them. Drink what he says to you every day. Eat this bread of life. Let's go to Mark chapter 15, verse 22, and see Jesus lifted up. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, 
you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him reviled him also. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. I want to take us over time to read you the story of another one's conversion, not this centurion, not this Nicodemus, but uh, one of the greatest preachers in recent history. His name was Charles Spurgeon. The day was January 6, 1850. He wasn't quite 16 years old. And he writes in his autobiography, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was from Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never, ye will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> well, 
Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text, but obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ, look, 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 you have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it, but I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. We pray. O Jesus, we look to you with our hearts and our souls, knowing we cannot do for ourselves, knowing that you can do for us, knowing that we'll find no comfort in, in ourselves and living a life of me and myself and I, knowing that we'll find no freedom in working hard to build a life where we look back and are satisfied and with pride say, look at what I have done, look at what I've built, knowing that no matter what anybody else thinks of us, no matter if even in the church, everybody thinks very, very well of us and even wants their family to be like ours, knowing that there's no deliverance, there's no comfort, there's no salvation in this. We do not stand on the merits of friends, family, associates, or the congregation we attend. We stand on your merits alone, and we look to you to draw the poison from us. We deserve to be bitten by snakes. We are snakes. We who were cursed in Adam have proven that we ourselves have, have perpetuated that curse. We're perpetually looking away from you. O oh God, cause us by your Holy Spirit to turn away unto Jesus, to lay aside every sin which entangles, that has dragged us down, and give us power to look to you for salvation, and to go out and do the good works you've prepared in advance for us to do so that everybody else can see that we have seen you. Oh God, do this for your own glory because you deserve it. And nobody's ever deserved glory like you deserve glory. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.